I supposed to come to all okay? Did I scare everybody off? <laughs> How many of you study Hebrew here? Okay. I want to read a little Hebrew. See if you understand it. Vo'olam sha'alna b'chemot v'toreka v'uf ha'shamayim v'yaged lak u'siha la'aretz v'toreka v'yisaferu l'ka d'gei hayom mi lo yada b'kol ele ki yada d'anai asata zot Asher buyado nefesh kol hai, v'ruach kol basar ish. That's what we just, Job. But ask now the beasts, v'toreka, and they will teach you. V'uf hashamayim, the birds of heaven, and they will tell you. Or ask the earth, or speak, actually I checked, there's a critical, they argue that some say that it's, don't ask the earth, it's the beasts of the earth will tell you. But the Septuagint doesn't have that. So it's, so ask now the, the earth and v'toreka and it will teach you and, and the fish of the sea will tell you. But this is the part I love. Mi lo yada, who does not know in all this that the hand of the Lord has done it? Who in his hand is the life of every living thing and the spirit of all men of flesh. Talk about an expression of natural theology, for lack of a better word. But you know, it's not just the birds and the fish. You know, I sometimes, I don't know about you, I sometimes, I can sort of mumble through my, the blessing over a meal. You know, Father, thank you, amen. You know, it's almost to close my eyes and almost say, Father, thank you for the Sabbath day when I'm really supposed to be saying a blessing over the food. I sometimes wonder, why haven't they come up with an app yet that can say the blessing for you? Okay, that's how rote, that's how rote it could become for me. Sometimes, but other times, other times the food before me can sometimes incite in me such an over-the-top reverie that my wife, and she's the only one I'll do it in front of. She's the only one. Sometimes my wife has to wonder, who did she marry? I mean, recently, recently a grapefruit. We sat down for breakfast with the grapefruit. Well, actually, this isn't a, let me tell you, when, when I left, those of you who heard my story yesterday, after I met my double and got baptized, I flew back to the States, and I was in Amsterdam Airport, and I ran, I had to run to catch the flight, and so I bought two 
of these, these two, these, these green apples, the green ones, I don't know what they're called, but whatever, these two green apples, what are they? Granny Smith, yeah, the green ones. <laughs> and I'm running, I'm running to catch my flight, and I'm t- I never forgot this. I stopped, and I looked at those things, and I'm, it was as if I was 23 years old, my whole life, nature grew up, the water, all that. I never, I never connected nature and God, okay? That just, the connection was never there. I never looked at that and thought, wow, what a God. But I looked at those apples, and I'm telling you, it was electric. I just felt this electric, and I looked, and if God, it was, could have screamed out at me, I love you, Cliff, I saw it in those apples. I mean, it was as clear to me, it was almost like you, you got a cartoon and they got the bubbles come out when they're speaking, and it could have said, look at this, God loves you, whatever. I was, I mean, truly, I was so blown away, I got on the plane, and there were two girls from my high school that were on the plane. And this was my first chance. I mean, I was so excited. I just started going, man, I just saw these apples and I could see the love of God in these apples and I'm going on and on about it, you know, waxing on and on. And finally, this girl just looked at me and she said, I think you're into your apples too much. Why don't you just eat them? Okay, so this was my first chance at personal witnessing, and it didn't work very well, and I haven't done very well since then. But, but the point that was the I'm telling you, it was as clear to me. It was just un, I mean, I just saw it right there. It was as clear to me as anything I'd ever known. But anyway, we sit down one morning for breakfast, and there's this grapefruit cut. And I'm looking at this thing, the smell, the texture, the shapes. You got these dozen or so isosceles like triangles all converging in the center and border around with the skin, you know, all soaked in this light, you know, the, 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 the fluid that glistened in the light. And I'm telling you, if God could have spoke to me in King's English, he could have said, Goldstein, you know, God loves you, Goldstein, or I love you. It couldn't have spoken more clearly to me of the reality of God's love. Just looking at that grapefruit. You know, we get so used to things. We forget. We forget. We, don't, we, we forget really what we see in front of us. You know, two plus two of necessity demands four. If I have 20 and I subtract 15 from it, yeah, pretty much it necessitates I get five. A circle, by definition, by necessity, needs to be round. And yes, if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then of necessity Socrates is mortal. But let me ask, what of necessity demands a grapefruit? You see, a self-contained packet 
a fruit, seed, and skin dangling in the air from a rod of wood, an edible wood. We're so used to this. We're so used and others like it, we forget. We're hardened to what a raging miracle it is. You know, G.K. Chesterton, I don't imagine you probably study much Chesterton here. You read some here, huh? He's pretty good. He's another flaming anti-Semite, but despite that, I like his writing anyway, okay? And here's a quote from Chesterton. He said, they talked as if the fact that a tree bears fruit were just as necessary as the fact that two trees and one tree makes three, but it is not. It's not, nothing's necessary. It's not inevitable. In fact, everything about this piece of fruit, everything about it, how it comes together, there are mysteries in it that even with their supercomputers and analyzing things, people can't understand. Science can't define even what life is. They struggle to get a definition of life and a single cell in a grapefruit is filled with mystery after mystery that biologists, scientists don't have a clue over. There are processes that go on in a grapefruit at every level that just they are baffled at. They might be able to describe it, but they can't explain it. You know, sooner or later, they come to a certain point and then knowledge just bottoms out. Listen to this quote here from a philosopher of science. For any theory will eventually bottom out, having to posit some regularities as basic or primitive without receiving any further explanation at a deeper level. Think about that. Sooner or later, all your explanations bottom out. You know, and modern science's best shot, what they tell us, that this evolved millions of years of random mutation, natural selection, all in all, and it just, the grapefruit blind, you know, blindly, survival of the fittest, fought its way through everything and ultimately evolved into a grapefruit. Come on, come on. Anyway. Finally, I was calming down enough. My wife, in other, words, in other words, okay, Cliff, eat. Let's eat, okay? And I was calming down enough, and then I saw something that freaked me out even more. It was the seed in the grapefruit, the seed, okay? Now, and I, it's like I looked at that thing, and I just, huh? And I remember I sat there, and I started peeling it. I started, what, what is in here? And I peeled it, and all I could find was white stuff. White stuff all the way, just this white stuff. Now, I'm supposed to believe, or I put it this way. Let's look at it another way. I read about some swami who says you don't have to eat food. He's got this theory. I had a friend of mine who was so wacky with diet. He was the one that sent me the link where it's some kind of sun therapy. 
where you just look at the sun, certain, I'm like, it's online. So it's got to, you know, you look at the sun at certain times of the day with therapy, and you could get all your nutrients from the sun, okay? All right, I wouldn't wreck, and I said to my friend, well, Steve, that's very interesting, but I suggest that you eat, okay? But anyway, but suppose, suppose, remember yesterday, if you were here, trillions of galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars and the planets. Suppose you lived on some planet and they got their nutrition by staring at the sun, okay? And suppose they said, hey, there's this planet, there's this planet where people take these pellets, they take pellets, and they dig a hole in the ground, and they put the pellet in dirt. They put the pellet in dirt, and all they do is leave it. They just make sure some the sun, their star shines on it a little, and they get some water on it, and over time, that pellet out of that pellet is going to grow a big old trunk of wood. And that trunk is going to have branches of wood come out. And on the end of that wood, there are going to be packets of food, self-contained packets of food, covered in skin called grapefruit. And not only that, they have in that grapefruit more of those pellets that they first put in the ground, and you could take that pellet out, and you could stick that pellet in the dirt and do the same thing again, and it could go on and on, potentially infinitely. Suppose they told you that. Why would anybody believe it? Why would anybody believe it? How does that make sense? You take this pellet, you put it in the, the dirt, and then something, you know, more and more. I don't know why. They, they might think it was a myth. And yet we take this seed, this great, this little white seed, and as I said, I'm sitting there peeling it open. You know, my wife said, please, let's just eat. You know, and I'm peeling it open, and I'm looking at it, and I'm just thinking, how did, you know, I'm not a gardener. My wife's the gardener. I just can't stand it. I just said, look, you do it. Just don't make me work in it. You know, I just, oh, I just, ah. And you go through all that work, and then what, the bugs and the rabbits and the deer eat it? Oh, you know. But anyway, you take this thing, you stick it in the ground. And this child, this thing of wood comes out. And this wood comes out and then sprouts the branches and then the fruit all self-contained and with more seeds on it. I mean... Again, how does the seed, how do you get all that out of the seed? You put it in the dirt. And you see, we're so used to it. We're so used to it, we forget. We forget how miraculous it really is. It's, if you really think about it, you know, it's amazing. Now, it's really nothing is illogical per se, I mean, if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, but Socrates is not mortal, there's a logical problem here. And there's nothing illogical about this. It's just 
amazing if you really think about it. If you really, we're just so used to it. But where the logic really breaks down, where this thing starts to get illogical, is not so much in what happens, however miraculous it is. Again, just put this thing in the ground and, and, and you got it. It's just, I still find it astonishing. The other day, one morning I was going, we were eating strawberries. And I guess the seeds are just like on the outside of the strawberry. And I said, my wife, you stick this tiny thing. Yes, yes, eat it, eat it. Because it was just, she said, please, she said, I don't want to go through this every meal with you. So I just back off. Because, but I mean, it's just fascinating. It's a miracle right before us. But again, the question is, it's not in that the logic, I think, breaks down as to how it first got created. I mean, how did the grapefruit in the seed first get there? Or how did the seed without the grapefruit first get there? It's kind of a vegan version of the chicken and the egg dilemma. Okay? What came first? The chicken or the egg? Okay, what came first? The grapefruit or the grapefruit seed? You know, it's funny. In general relativity, all of... Einstein's field equations, all the stuff that explains, it breaks down in the middle of a black hole. Everything just breaks down. And uh, in the laws of physics, the basic laws of physics, you get into the realm of quantum physics and all the stuff, you know, all the Newtonian and determinism, it all breaks down. And I think... What we have here, literally growing on trees, is a parallel to what is sometimes called the self-referential paradox. And this is when logic itself, the laws of logic themselves break down. I want to put, can you get that statement on there? Okay. Look at this sentence. Okay. This sentence is false. Okay? Simple sentence. Nothing illogical about it, so it seems. Perfect grammar. Now, do you see a problem here? Okay, what's that? Is it true or false? Okay, you guys, all right, let's look. You guys are students. Let's play classroom. That's, I guess that's probably not what you really want to do, is it? Yeah, okay. Well, too bad, too bad. Anyway, you can ask. You don't have to worry about getting a grade, though. Is the sentence true or false? Okay, let's say the sentence is true. Then it's false. Can you see the point? This is, but wait a minute. The law of excluded middle, something cannot be and be, you know, at the same time. Or, you know, but, I'm, but see what I'm saying? Either something is or it isn't. The sentence is false. If the sentence is true, then the sentence is false. Okay? Okay. So let's take the opposite. 
Suppose this sentence is false. Suppose that's false. Then it's true. Okay? It's false that it's false. It's a double negative. It's true. Now, wait a minute. Is the sentence true or false? Both. Both. What is that? Both not in the same way, but, well, I think they are kind of in the same way. I mean, here's just a plain English sentence. It's either true or false in either way. Okay. The bottom line for me, this is what's known as the self-referential paradox. And in many ways, I think ultimately all logic, all reason. In fact, it was funny. There was a guy. Oh, what was his name? Frege, Gottlieb Frege. He was a logician and a mathematician. And he spent years of his life because all he wanted to do, he wanted to put mathematics, he wanted to put mathematics on a logical foundation. Okay? Pretty, re- I mean, math. You know, we, we are logical beings. You'd like life to be logical. And if anything at all, mathematics, you think if anything would be logical, it would be mathematics. So Frege spends years of his life writing this whole massive work in his attempt to make math logical. And he's an older man. He's completed his life's work. He's so excited. And he decides he's going to send it to this young mathematician and philosopher in England named Bertrand Russell. I don't know, Russell's is probably by far my favorite atheist author. I mean, he's been dead for years now, but really just a brilliant mind, brilliant thinker. You know, he's got the same old arguments for atheism, but actually I read a biography that his daughter wrote of him. It was kind of funny. She said, deep down, I think my father's whole life was a quest for God. Which is, well, I'm deviating. But anyway, anyway, he, Frege writes this book and he sends it to Russell. He said, let's put Russell, let's see what Burton Russell has to say about it. And Russell reads it and says, well, you know, this is very good. But I have one, just I have one little question for you. And the basic question came something like this, self-referential. And the bottom line is Frege read the question, thought about it, and realized his entire life's work, everything he tried to do, crashed and burned on the shoals of this self-referential paradox, and as far as I know right now, it has never been solved, okay? Which ultimately, again, it comes down, there's a certain point, our knowledge and everything, it comes to a point, and then, hmm, what do you have to have? Faith, what do you know? What do you know? Even in math, you need faith, and so I think the difference with Scripture God built it a priori in, faith. It's built right in because inevitably everything ultimately 
breaks down. And a lot of times it breaks down, it becomes self-referential. I remember once I wrote this book, I know you guys don't have time, called Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity, about faith and science. That's the stuff I really like. It's been years researching and then writing that thing. And I remember I had a, I was asked, I called up a physicist at the Geoscience Research Institute because I had a question about general relativity, which is, you know, gravity. And he said, the bottom line, he said, among, the joke among physicists is that gravity pulls us to the earth because gravity pulls us to the earth. I mean, with all the Einstein, with all the, you know, general relativity is very complicated stuff. I mean, even I can do the math for special relativity. Just about anybody could do that. Einstein couldn't do the math for general relativity. He had to go to an old teacher and teach him how to do the math for that. But even with all of that, it ultimately came down to this self-referential, this recursive. Gravity pulls us to the earth because gravity pulls us to the earth. But anyway, so again, let's come back. All this, come back to the grapefruit and the seed. What came first? The seed out of which the grapefruit emerged or the grapefruit out of the seed emerged? And how could it be one or the other? What came first? Well, it can't be one or the other because it's not one or the other. See, this was, oh, you could get me going on Ludwig Wittgenstein. If you know, you probably have, some of you studied Wittgenstein here. I'm sure you probably, you probably have. But the dilemma isn't a physical question about the nature of reality. The dilemma is a rhetorical one. The dilemma, the dilemma is, isn't with the grapefruit and the seed. The paradox arises from the question. The question itself is fraught with an assumption. It's like, did you ever hear when they, they say, oh, getting old, don't get old. Oh, gosh. I guess it's better than getting dead, but uh, anyway, where was I? I'm sitting here. Oh, oh, the question, oh, yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. See, not only does your body go, your mind starts going as well. <laughs> All right. It's, uh, it's the question, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Okay, you see the problem there. What is the assumption? What's the assumption you're beating your wife? Only questions could be loaded. That's why these polls that they take, these political you know, questions they ask, ooh, they can pretty much get anything they want out of you on that, to how you frame the question. Have you stopped beating your wife yet? And of course, the assumption is you're beating your wife. Okay, well, the question about the grapefruit assumes, what does it assume? Which came first, the grapefruit or the grapefruit seed? It assumes that one came before the other, right? Which came first, the grapefruit or the grapefruit seed, okay? 
and you run into uh, a very difficult problem with that. Unless, unless, you see, that's not what the Word of God teaches. You go to Genesis 1.11, and I'm just read out of the NIV here. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit seed in it. That's really not a very good, I probably should translate myself, according to their various kinds. And it was so. Do you see what it's saying here? Let the land seed-bearing plants and trees on land that bear fruit with seed in it. Can you see what's going on here? That's the, with that one simple Bible verse, revealed truth, okay? The, the, the dilemma is solved. We can solve the dilemma which came first because neither one did. They were instead created at the same time. It's the only way to make sense of the grapefruit containing the seed of its own species in it. And again, I still, I just marvel at this, this stuff. And I say, Lord, help me not to lose just the, as I said, I don't know my whole life. And then all of a sudden, just the past few years, I'm just starting to look at this and I'm just marveling. We take this stuff for granted. God created the grapefruit with the seed in it. Voila. Just like that, just like that, the paradox is solved, okay? And what seemed like a mystery, mystery is not, it was, the answer was revealed to us in one text of the Bible. Now, I realize I'm not saying anything new that hasn't been said before, but again, I just think we're so used to this stuff. We're so used to it, we forget I have a sermon I preach sometimes, and I basically, and I mean it. I, the sermon's called The Reality of God. And, I, you know, I see the reality of God everywhere, just everywhere. Even in things I don't understand, I just see the reality of God. And for a guy who was raised for 23 years, I saw it nowhere. I saw it nowhere. And again, it's like the veil was pulled off my eyes. There was a late Menachem Schneerson. He was a Hasidic rabbi, a Lubavitch rabbi. And they, it was fascinating when a lot of these Hasids, the Lubavitch and the Bronx over around the world, they thought he was the Messiah. And when Schneerson died on him, they, start, they thought that he was going to be resurrected. And the Lubavitch were saying, Scripture teaches the Messiah is going to be resurrected. And ooh, did the other Jews go ape on them. They were said, for 2,000 years, we've been fighting the missionaries, meaning Christians trying to proselytize Jews. And now these Orthodox Hasids are saying, no, Scripture teaches that the Messiah is going to be resurrected. But again, I'm deviating again, but the point is, I read a book that he wrote, Lubav Schneerson, and one time he said, the only reason we don't deem 
what's the clock? How much time have I got? Because I can just, I could just, all right, we're all right. I think we're all right. I'll, you know. Anyway, but he said the only reason we don't think a sunset is a miracle is because we see them all the time. Just think about, imagine only once in your life, once in your life you could see a sunrise or a sunset. You'd probably never forget it. You'd probably never, for again, if you think of that planet, and you told them you stuck a pellet in the ground and you put it in the dirt and the next thing they would, if, if they'd even believe it. And I don't necessarily know why they would even want necessarily believe it. They probably have to say it was a miracle. Okay? And we see it all the time and man, just, we don't even think about it anymore. And I remember I had... It was almost that time with that grapefruit and that seed. I still remember, I know it, it sounds hokey. And I said, the only one I go off on this front is, is my wife. I won't do it around anybody else. And, uh, but it was almost, it was like looking at that and thinking about that. It was almost like I got connected to Eden. It's like, I just, it was almost this, I'm not this mystical kind of a guy. I had that wacky stuff happen to me, and yes, I said yesterday, but, you know, most of the time I'm just trudging along like everybody else. But there was this moment there. I'm looking at that, and it just, it almost seemed to have, I got a taste of Eden. I thought, wow, this is a taste of what Eden must have been like, and this is just one fruit. You know, how many, all the others, can you imagine? Imagine what it must have been like. You know, and here we are centuries, you know, millennia after sin and degradation. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Not just the heavens, but the earth too. Even after millennia of sin, death, and entropy. See, it's funny, you know, the ancient world... The ancient world, particularly the early Western world, was under the enthrall of Aristotle. Everything was Aristotle, Aristotle. Everybody tried to harmonize everything with Aristotle. And, uh, you know, and they believed, Aristotle taught that everything above the moon and all that was absolutely flawless and perfect. And the sublunar world here was decay and change and so on. And that partly helps explain why Galileo, and this, oh, this is just, you know, theistic evolutionists will always try to argue that you creationists, you're like the, the you know, the Jesuit inquisitors who are going to torture poor old Galileo because he was against science and, you know, he was, you know, they were against science. But I would argue that the intellectual heirs of the Jesuit inquisitors who did Galileo in are the theistic evolutionists. Where does the Bible teach that the earth sits immobile, wrong, 
at the center of the universe wrong, and all the planets orbit it wrong, at constant speeds wrong, and at perfect circles. That's not in the scripture. That was the latest and greatest science of the time, Aristotle. And the church, well, I'm not going to use that word. I definitely better not. The church, it's the only word I could think of. And the church, wanting to accept culture, wanting to be relevant, wanting to be cultural, just bought in. How do you think we got Sunday keeping? How do you think we got the whole thing, the church compromising? And the church compromising with the greatest science of the time, Aristotle, melding it with scripture till this Aristotelian nonsense was deemed scriptural and they were ready to torture this guy. Because supposedly it was against the Bible and it was against... The difference, though, is Aristotle could, could have been right. It wouldn't matter to my faith. If evolution is right, you're all a bunch of fools. I'm a fool as well. If evolution is right, there's, and I mean billions of years of common descent, everything we believe is a lie. And I would challenge anybody anywhere to tell me how that, that's, I'm wrong on that. But anyway, that's another... I might even touch on that tomorrow. But anyway, the point is, even amid the decay and the corruption, you can see the handiwork of God in this world. Even amid everything. I mean, it's just, it, it literally grows on trees. Examples of God's love. You know, people would look in nature and for millennia they would see examples of the reality of the creator. I mean, there were always voices that said no. You know, in the 18th century, David Hume, some of you know David Hume, he argued, he, you know, and he supposedly, I've read his book, I've read it a couple times, and everybody just, well, David Hume destroyed the argument from design. David Hume, after David Hume, we've got to admit the argument doesn't work. I mean, and it's ludicrous. What did Hume, Hume said? Look, just because you see, you see a gold watch on the ground, you assume there's a watchmaker, okay? And then, you know, he said people then think because they see something designed in nature, that means something had to design it. And, there, and he said, well, one doesn't mean the other. Okay, the, the fact that you got a watchmaker doesn't automatically mean that something else designed had to be created or designed the way the watch was. But see, the point is, if you see a gold watch on the ground and you, you, know, you know that it must have had a watchmaker, this doesn't prove that the universe had a creator. It was never supposed to prove that. It was only an inference, an inference from design. The gold watch looks designed. You can infer that it has a creator, a designer. The universe looks designed. You can infer that it has a designer, period. That's all it intended to prove. I mean, look at it like this. Suppose you walk along and found a gold watch on the ground shaped like a flower. A gold watch shaped like a flower. You would, of course, assume that it was designed, right? Gold watch shaped like a flower. 
Instead of a gold watch, suppose you found a silver watch shaped like a flower. You would assume it was designed. Suppose you found a wooden watch shaped like a flower. You would assume it was designed. Now, suppose you found a wooden object that looked just like a wooden watch, shaped but shaped like a flower, but it wasn't functioning as a watch. Okay. You would still, it was shaped like a flower, you know, and, and, and looked like a flower and had a few functions, you know, like a watch, but, like a, but wasn't functioning as a watch. You would assume, would you not, it was designed. Well, now, suppose you found a flower-shaped object actually had functions like a flower, looked the same as before, but now even had more functions and so on. Once you assume it was designed, see where I'm going? And then you finally, you come across something that not only looked like the flower that you had seen, but functioned just like a flower. Once you assume it was designed. See, that's, that, that's, at what point does the design argument vanish? See, I'm not that telling you that from me that morning. See, I probably read, I probably read too much philosophy that's been good for me. So I can't be adamant, I can't absolutely, you know, you prove anything absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, I don't need that though. But I just, when I looked at that grapefruit and I looked at the grapefruit half and the seed in it, the seed of its own species in it, you know, and just the beauty of it and just so health and all this, I mean, I'm telling you the reality of the Genesis story. I mean, it was the most logical conclusion that I could come to. I mean, the logic there just seemed almost irrefutable. To say irrefutable, I'm, I've so messed myself up probably over these years now. To say absolute, but no, no, what's faith about? That's the whole point of faith, you know? So I guess that isn't bad. But I, it was just as inscrutable, it was just as I was as, as clear as to me as I could imagine. How else could you explain that? How else logically you're going to say it evolved by chance? So was the seed evolving along with the grapefruit at the same time? Were they, you know, what, how did that happen? At the same time, it was through chance and this and that, the grapefruit seed had randomly mutated. And at the same time, the grapefruit was randomly mutating. Anyway, to me, logically, the one thing that could explain it would be that just as Genesis 1.11 said. You know, I looked at that grapefruit half and I saw more confirmation. Not only for God's love for me, but why I should love him back. You know, and I think, but you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then I, I think of those verses in Romans, for since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I mean, that's pretty heavy stuff. That's pretty, you know, Paul's saying it. I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it. That's pretty heavy stuff, you know. And then, as I said the other day, yesterday, the one who made that grapefruit, all things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. The one who made the grapefruit and put the seed in it and the peaches and the pears and then on and on and on and I go on and the bananas and the... Oh, yeah, the other day, my wife, I was, well, never mind, the bananas. <laughs> it's the same spiel again over and over. This tiny little seed in there, and you get a whole banana out of it, tree out of it. I mean, this was the one who died for us on the cross. The creation is astonishing enough. To, I mean, again, if we could just pull the veil from our eyes and actually look at it, it's astonishing enough. It's just a miracle that we're here. It's just a miracle that we're here and things are the way they are. And then, and then he became, not only as our creator, he became our redeemer. He one who put the seed in at the beginning. He was the one who at the cross bore the punishment. I mean, again, as I said yesterday, how do you respond? To what, and all I could keep going back to what that VP said. You know, you, you know, you just worship. You worship the creator. So all this went through my mind as I sat there looking at the grapefruit before me. And I realized what a miracle it was and what a powerful revelation of God's love, not only of his existence, but of God's love. And really, I'm not going to have time. I'm not going to get into it now. She probably had enough. But all that happened before I even took the first bite. Okay? Even before I took the first bite. And I think since I got two seconds left, it's a good time to end. So anyway.